We're going to finish what we started last week. We're talking about love and talking about doing life together. And when you say love in a room this size, there's as many different conceptions of what love is as there are people. And, and that becomes very confusing because everyone knows how important love is, but there's uh, such a dearth of really understanding what it's about. And in Romans 12, where we've been looking the last couple of weeks because we're talking about life together, we're talking about the, the nuts and bolts of life together, and this is the second part of that, uh, that teaching. Paul's going to start in the letter he wrote to these Christians at Rome in verse 9, and he's going to start talking about love. And it doesn't look like he says anything more about love after he talks about love in one short sentence. But actually, the rest of what he says is the exposition of love. It is taking love and saying, this is how you actually show love day in and day out among one another. And that's a word that you'll see in this passage that's uh, that little phrase actually it's one Greek word but it it has the idea of uh, what we do together how life works when we do it together and so what does it look like what does love look like and there are wonderful examples all around us of love but they're also those examples of love are just swallowed up by a sea of self-interest And it just confuses people. Because one person says, this is loving. Another one says, no, this is loving. That's not loving. Another person says, that's not loving. This is loving. And, you know, it's it's very difficult to to find your footing in that kind of an atmosphere. And it was no different in the first century than it is today because there's all these competing ideas about what love is. And so Paul uh, undertakes... Uh, just to, and, and, and he's not trying to be exhaustive, but he just takes, this, takes a few minutes and he writes this brilliant summary of love that he's trying to ex- exhort and instruct these group of Christians to, to get into. And so I want to start reading with you, but what I want to do today is, and it doesn't matter what translation you have, uh, I want to pray for a second, and then I want us to read it out loud together. We're going to read from verse 9 to verse 21. Now I want to tell you something. As you read some of these passages... These passages, you will find yourself, as you hear one of them, you will just stop there. Because it will say something that particularly speaks to you. And one of the things that, that, that God's Word says about itself is that it has this creative power. And one of the things that we want to be known as, whatever we want it, we should want to... Whatever, one of the things... Let me say that again. One of the things we should want to be known as and to be known about us is that we are people of genuine love. I mean, there's, there's no higher compliment anyone could pay to you than that you're a loving person that expresses love in a way that honors God, that, that honors His design and His will. And when we read the Word of God and we look to God and as Jesus says, we have ears to hear, God's Word has this power to begin to create in us new hearts. He could take the hearts that we have when we open them up to Him, because He's the only one that can do it. 
and he can do this heart surgery on us, he can begin to change our character. You know, I've, I've reminded you before of, uh, of the stories. The, the, this is the story of the Bible. One of the songs that we sing, Amazing Grace, was a song written by a man named John Newton, who at one time was a slave trader. And he was the captain of a slave ship. He was a cruel, hard, violent man. And he came to Christ. And he became one of the strongest proponents for the abolition of slavery. In fact, he was one of the men who influenced Wilberforce, who became the leading voice in England to abolish slavery. And John Newton wrote that song, Amazing Grace, because the grace of God that he heard through the word of God changed his heart so dramatically that he who saw African Americans as nothing more than, or in other human beings, as nothing more than, you know, property or, in, or subhuman, he was hardened to them. He discovered as, as God's word was spoken over him, as he heard it preached, his heart changing. So I believe that God, as, as you're reading this, God wants to do a work like that in our hearts. And so what I want to do is, be, because this is a powerful, the word is powerful, I, I want to read it out loud together, but I want to pray first. Because I just want to take each one of these sentences and just briefly explain something about it that isn't already apparent. If it's apparent, I'm not going to say it again. But some of the things that are in here, we read over these and they don't necessarily sound profound to us. But this is taking the idea of love and it's clarifying it in, in a profound way, but it raises the bar of what love is in our culture, because what our culture says is love is mostly just self-interest that's dressed up. Real love is costly. Real love requires self-giving and sacrifice. And that's not something that most people are willing to say, yeah, that's what I want to go for, (laughs) a life of self-giving sacrifice, yes, sir. That's just not what we wake up in the morning and bounce out of bed, you know, hoping God helps us to, to do more of. It's not. But God can work in our hearts if, if we ask him, if we, if we will have ears to hear. So let's pray and then we'll read this out loud. Lord, uh, we believe this is your word. And, and uh, I just pray that you would speak to us out of it and that you would speak creatively and powerfully and that it would change our hearts and make them more like yours. Uh, fill us with your love, Lord, in these very concrete, practical, down-to-earth, day-in, day-out ways. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So let's start reading together. Read out loud. It's going to sound a little bit because of all the translations, but let's try it anyway, okay? So start at verse 9. Follow my cadence. Don't go too fast. Don't go too slow. Follow me. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, he starts off, go back to verse 9. He says, love must be sincere. Now, what that word sincere means in in the original language, it, it means without hypocrisy. So, in other words, love has to come from your heart. It can't just be words, and it has to be demonstrated. It has to be demonstrated. Having nice sentimental feelings is not love. It's not. Our feelings move this way, they move that way. Love is actually something that's, that's far more substantial than that. And so he says, don't be hypocritical. Love from your heart. Demonstrate your love in the way you live your life. And when Jesus, uh, at, at the end of his life and his ministry in, in the Gospel of John, he said to his disciples in, in John 13, he said, a new commandment I give you. And they were probably going, oh, we need a new commandment? We, you, we're already like overwhelmed by everything you've taught us. Well, what, do you really need any more? And he goes, yes. Because he really was summing up everything he said. He said, a new commandment I give you. Love one another. There's that word, one another. The way I've loved you. <laughs> I think it was a real quiet moment after he said that. I think he's going... You get it? And they're just they're like, that's like in class on Friday, you're ready to go home, you know, from school. And the teacher says, okay, I want you to read 12 chapters this weekend in your book, you know, and write a, a term paper. And you're just going, Jesus was saying something about love. He was serious about love reflects the love he showed. And so the next thing he says is, now, and this is where people really struggle with real biblical Christianity, because the next thing he says is hate what's evil and cling to what's good. And people today go, whoa, isn't isn't Christianity a gospel of love? Absolutely. Look Look at the cross. It was where God died for everyone. He died for his enemies. He died for the people that were killing him. But there is evil and there is good. And Jesus makes this distinction over and over and over in the Gospels. Jesus wasn't just a man of great tolerance. You know, a man who was just super nice and mellow. Jesus was the one who when he saw injustice, he got serious. (laughs) Uh, There were moments where Jesus 
turned tables over in the temple of God because of abuses that were going on there. He called people on the carpet in, in their own home. He was in homes where he had been invited in by the, the, the home owner, and he saw them act in a way that, that he thought needed to be addressed. And in front of all his, their, uh, the guests among whom he was one, he dressed them down lovingly. There are things we're supposed to hate. There is evil in the world that we should hate. And that word there, hate, is, it, it isn't like our translation to, to tweak a word and twist it out of its original meaning. It certainly must have meant, you know, something softer than that word. Because nobody today wants to be associated with hating anything. There's lots of things in this world we should hate. There's, there's only a few things most people hate, but there's way more things that are in the category of needing to be hate, hated than we're willing to recognize. Which that, requi- that must mean that we need, if we're going to learn to love, we're going to need to practice discernment. We're going to have to, to ratchet up our sense, our moral sense. Because love at its most fundamental level has a moral basis. It recognizes there's a moral order in the universe. That God created something and it reflects His nature. And if you can't read the Bible and not see that God's righteous and just. That He's kind and caring. And, and, he, and He demonstrates virtues perfectly and He's made us to be like Him and to be changed into His likeness and to let those virtues guide and shape and form our relationships. But... Human beings are capable of evil. I don't think there's too many people who don't believe that. But many times we're just not willing to call something that's really evil, evil. Because the people around us aren't necessarily of that persuasion. And I'm not going to pick on any one particular thing because there's, we live in a target-rich environment for evil. Uh, and every culture does. American culture is not any worse than Chinese culture or Argentinian culture. I've, I've traveled enough in the world and seen enough of the world to know and read enough to know it's not. We're not particularly uh, uh, a sinful nation, but we have our, our flaws. And so Jesus said that, and Paul picks it up, and he says, you have to exercise discernment. Don't swallow everything. Now, in the context of, of instruction and teaching and prophecy, he's basically also, so this is like, This has two sides. Some people are afraid to... We we have two extremes in the church. Uh, We hear people who teach, who stand up in in Jesus' name, like I'm doing now, and purport to expound God's Word and explain it, and then press you to obey it. Some people just want to open their mouths and swallow like a little infant. And just go, yeah, go, 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 you know. And you know, when babies are first born, as they're starting to crawl, we all learn to put latches on our lower counters because our kids will get into those cabinets and they will drink anything because their taste buds are not developed enough to be able to discriminate between what's good for them and what isn't. And so we have to do it for them because there's things that they'll swallow that are bad. But see, we're as adults, we're supposed to be 
people who, when we hear a teaching, go, I want to be open to whatever God might say to me, but I also am responsible for what I take in. And not a month goes by when I, I, I go online to various leadership sites and, and Christian publications, and I read about a, a, another situation where a bunch of people got sucked into a terrible teaching because they were just naive, and, un, and they just trusted the person because, you know, they were sharp and intelligent, and they had a bunch of letters after their name because in our, in, in our culture, that, that's what gives you authority, right? If you've got enough letters after your name, and, and you're persuasive enough, and you dress right, and none of that matters, ultimately. Because Jesus was an unlettered man, and all of his disciples, for the most part, were unlettered men. And there have been lettered men and women who've taught the gospel since then. But it's a mixed bag in terms of whether or not any of that is credible and something that, that people should take in spiritually. And Paul says here, Hate what's evil, cling to what's good. In other words, like John Wimber used to teach us, his little saying was, listening to teachings from Christian leaders or anybody is like eating fish. When you eat fish, you swallow the meat, spit out the bones. And a lot of us don't think that there could possibly be any bones in what we hear. Because certainly this person, if they teach in the vineyard or they're Baptist or they're whoever... It's all filet. No bones in there. No. It's always got bones in it. Mine has the least bones. <laughs> in fact, the, the bones that you'll swallow from me, they're good for you. You get calcium and protein. No, it's not. Paul said that. The only people that never said spit out the bones were the apostles. Because they knew they were speaking with a unique authority. And they said over and over, they warned everybody, you need all the teachers in the church, you need to be, practice this discernment with. But better not do it with us because we're speaking God's word. And I mean, that's pretty bold to say that. It's either true or not. And if, if that wasn't true, that says something about the quality of their character and then the rest of what they taught, doesn't it? Because people who are a little bit megalomaniacal shouldn't be trusted. And these guys, if you define it that way, people who think that they are perfect, these guys didn't think they were perfect, but they believed when they spoke at times, they wrote in a limited way what God wanted. And we rec the church has recognized this. It's sorted through this for, for millennia now, two millennia. And these words have power. Everywhere these words are spoken, they have transformed dark cultures and brought order and justice and civility because they're God's words. And sometimes that doesn't sit well with us because we, you know, for lots of reasons. But I think, you know, a, a good argument can be made to receive these words this way, but to listen to other people who teach them you got to realize it's coming through my filter. It's coming through me. And your responsibility is to go back to this book and say, is what John's saying, does that really match up with all of it, what it says everywhere, you know, on, on balance? I don't want to go too far into this, but you, you got to do that. And when prophetic words are given, when someone says, I feel like God's giving me a particular 
insight uh, that might be for this, you know, our small group or for you, again, you're called to weigh that and examine it. There's another passage in 1 Thessalonians 5 where Paul says, don't despise prophecy. Now, there's this gift where God brings something to mind for people in a moment. He says, don't despise that gift. And, and really, that means that they'd seen enough funky prophecy that they started despising it. <laughs> Do you get it? If you've heard the real thing and it, and it exposes your heart and makes you fall on your face and say, oh God, you're, you're good and I'm not, and, but you love me anyway. When you hear words that are powerful, you don't despise prophecy, but when you hear a bunch of you know, bubblegum kind of stuff, what passes sometimes for, for prophetic words, then you'd start despising it. But he says, don't do that. Wherever God is, he's going to be doing that amongst his people. And he says, but again, he says, examine everything carefully. First Thessalonians 5. Hold, hate what, hold on to what's good and abstain from everything that's evil. And he uses that same word evil here. And he's not using it in the, in the most uh, extreme moral sense. But if we don't learn that love has a moral basis to it, we're going to swallow anything. And if we don't let the truth shape how we view the world, we're just going to be swept along with all kinds of things that are not loving. And because the tide of human thinking and culture just moves in and moves out. It moves in and it moves out. But over time, you see that the truth is like this bedrock that doesn't move, that's stable. It's what you can build your life on. And Paul's calling them to exercise moral discernment. And it's not an easy thing. It requires something of us. And so sometimes we don't like it. Uh, He says next, be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. And again, we, we live in this world that's driven by self-interest. And Paul says, if you're going to love, you have to realize that, your brother, that the people in Christ that are in, in the body with you, your small groups and your congregations, they are family. And so he uses this word Philadelphia, which is the word we have for brotherly or family love. And he says, love those people like they're your family. But then he adds something to that. Because that doesn't seem that challenging. Then he says, and honor them above yourself. That's just not something that people are eager to do. If you go to work, in most work environments, everybody knows, my job is to move up the ladder. And I want to, you know, most Christians go, I want to, you know, work hard. I want to do the right thing. I want to add value to the company. But I want to move up that ladder. What he's saying here is, that's okay, but why don't you also seek to live in a way that tries to honor other people and help them move up that ladder, even if they move up faster than you? And not be jealous of their success. Be grateful for what you have. Because the cool thing is, a person who lives like that is going to move up the ladder. Do you understand? Because that's the kind of person you want in higher places of responsibility because they're the kind of person who cares about the people around them even more than themselves. And let me tell you something. The further you get up the ladder in almost any organization, the people there are more self-interested than the people below them. They just are better at hiding it. You can't 
read the stories in the business world and not believe that. Do you understand? That's hard. I know it's hard to swallow because some of you are going, I know some pretty nice people. They're in management where I work, and I'm in management. Where do all these scandals come from? From really nice people? Really unself-interested people? No. They come from scoundrels. And we're all scoundrels until Jesus changes us. And the way up the ladder is, go- is the safest way up the ladder is to try to help other people get up that ladder before you. Because then you're safe. Because God says, if you're faithful in a little, I'll give you more. Because promotion doesn't come from the east or the west. It comes from the Lord. And so if we or people are saying, there's nothing wrong with seeking to move up the ladder. Do you understand that? There's nothing wrong with that. But to seek to move up the ladder without having the character that's necessary for higher and higher levels of responsibility, that's wrong. And so if you live for the good of other people, God's going to promote you. He's going to put you in places that he can use you. And you can, be, uh, uh, you can do good for others and care about others. Care about the company you're in and the, and the clients that you work for and the community, your fellow employees and your family. All that becomes part of you know, the calculation of your life. But if we em- embrace this idea that love means honoring people ab- amongst our, ab- above ourselves, excuse me, that changes things. It's a game changer. Next thing he says is, I'm going to talk about this in a couple of weeks, so I'm really not going to say much. He says, never be lacking in zeal, but stay aglow or stay on fire with the Spirit serving the Lord. And zeal for God. People, you know, there's a lot of talk today about religious fanaticism. Right? Because religious extremists are causing a lot of trouble. Paul says, part of your job description is to be a religious extremist. But he qualifies it in a way that we're going to talk about in in the next few weeks. Uh, Our series, or our theme during Lent is going to be hunger for God. That's our theme during Lent. Hunger for God. And and the the assumption that, that we've come to about this whole idea of hunger for God is we are made for more and more and more of God. We are created for more and more and more of God. But why aren't we hungry for more and more and more of God? We're going we're gonna to explore that. Because it is a bit of a contradiction. And there's a reason for it. There's a, there's a lot there that we'll look at over the next seven weeks. But Paul says that that's one of the expressions of love is to be zealous for God. To, to be on fire with the Spirit. We'll break those three points down in another teaching in a couple of weeks. So I want to go on. So he says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And see, one of the characteristics of, of love is being hopeful. It's, it's this sense. Hope is this. Hope is the expectation that all things work together for good because God is good. The problem is, it doesn't always work together for our good immediately, or it doesn't look like it. And we endure seasons in our life where we experience affliction. He says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction. 
See, if you have hope, if you believe that God's good and that he's in control of everything and that he promises to make things work for your good, even when they don't look like they're going to work for your good, that can give you hope. If you believe hope is the result of that. And then when you have hope, you can be patient in affliction. And you can be faithful in prayer then. Because, you know, hope is a, is a finite commodity. And as you go through affliction, hope seems to sort of shrink. Like, I have less hope, less hope, less hope, less hope. And so hope is replenished as you pray. And hope is this precious commodity. Paul says there's faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. But he didn't say hope wasn't really important. He said hope is this rich and precious thing. But it starts with knowing God's good. And then holding on to that when we're going through affliction. And then replenishing that hope by praying. And sometimes, like I've said to my friends over the years, uh, one of my friends the other day was driving back. He, he manages a, a bunch of properties. And uh, we were talking on the phone. He was coming back from out of town. He was telling me the struggle he's going through. And I said, I said, listen, here's what I want you to do. As soon as we finish talking and, and, and you hang up, I just want you to start telling God exactly how you feel. Because you, you seem a little PO'd. <laughs> you know, I, I know you know what that means. That, that's shorthand for something. And I said, I think you need to tell God that. I think you need to tell God exactly how you feel because that's what the prophets did. That's what the Psalms teach us. And I believe that God's going to meet you if you're honest. Because I think you're trying to dress it up and it's affecting you. It's draining you. It's hurting you. You, you have this, this clash inside you. And so he goes, okay. You know, we hang up. And I could almost hear him going through Cleveland. He said, I just let loose and told God exactly how I felt about the situation at work and all these things that were going on. And he said, it was like, God met me so unexpectedly. I didn't, I didn't believe that that's how it worked. And most of us don't. We don't think that prayer can have a profound impact on our lives. But it does. Prayer is what brings us into contact with God. We can have a conversation with Him if we're honest with Him. And sometimes we don't feel like we have permission to be honest. The Bible gives us permission to be honest. It requires us to be honest. You can't read the Psalms, which were, which were supposed to be prayers and songs of the church and God's people. You read some of those. You read some of those. There's some really uh, wild language in there, to say the least. It almost sounds uncivilized, the anger that was expressed. But those people were going through hell. And God didn't say just keep it yourselves down there. I know what's going on. He gave them words that they could express that to him. And as they did, their heart opened up and they met God in the middle of it. It didn't mean the circumstances necessarily immediately changed, but God was with them in the middle of it and so they could endure and they could be patient in their affliction. The next thing he says is, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practiced hospitality. See, one of the most familiar passages in the Bible is John 3.16. If you're a sports fan, you've seen it Behind the, right, behind the goalpost over and over in that green sign. There used to be the guy with the wig, and he would go like that and just get your attention. And people, a lot of people, you know, that was, uh, on Sundays, that used to be the most uh, searched Google term was John 
Because people be watching football. What, what is that? I, I think I read that in Sunday school. And they put it on Google. Boom. And then the guy died. And they stopped holding that sign up uh, all over the place. Actually, he did. It's a true story. But uh, anyway, that's, another, that's, not, that's a whole other teaching. Uh, it says, God so loved the world, he gave. Is it a surprise? Should it surprise us that love is generous? And there's two kinds of love he says here. Love that sees people's needs, brothers and sisters' needs, and meets those needs, being generous towards them. And that love, hospitality, literally means the love of strangers. The love of strangers. And in how they would have heard that in that day was, you let strangers come into your house. Mm. What? <laughs> what? Let strangers come into your house? In fact, believe it or not, they were so serious about it that to be an elder in, a, in, the, in the first church, you had to practice hospitality. That was one of the signs that you were mature in love, that you invited people in your house who were in need to eat, to live, short stays. Who would have thought that? But that's self-giving love. See? Most of us are, are, are nurtured in this American mentality that this is my stuff. You know? This is my stuff. I had one of my friends who used to lead a small group. He, uh, went, he said... He had a big, small group, and they had a lot of kids that would come to his house. And one day, one of the ladies, a single mom, came with her little uh, you know, two-and-a-half, three-year-old. And the two-and-a-half or three-year-old got into their kid's toy chest, took their little diaper off, and made number two. <laughs> and, and it wasn't, like, nice and firm. <laughs> Just trying to not be too graphic here. And, you know, and then closed the door and then went and got mom to get her a diaper. So it wasn't until that evening when they're cleaning up, he goes upstairs, he's putting kids to bed and he's going. And he's looking at his kids. You know, his kids are seven, eight, nine years old. He's thinking, did you guys have an accident? No, dad, it kind of smells bad in here. You know, they, they, you, know you know how you do when you're a parent? You <laughs> and goes over and lifts it up. Woo! <laughs> And so everyone goes to bed, and he's sitting. They bring the thing downstairs. He puts it on the kitchen counter, and he's cleaning the toys off. And he's saying, oh, God, you know, what are you doing? These people that have come to my house. And I mean, this is when it gets real, isn't it? Isn't it? But see, hospitality, there, there is, it is so powerful to let people in your home and to make them feel at home even when they dump in your toy chest. <laughs> Hopefully you will never experience that. But as he was sitting there, he said the Lord just spoke to him and said, whose toys are those? Whose chest is that? Whose house is this? I didn't give it to you just for you. And he was, okay, that's it. And he said, I just, it, he said, it wasn't any fun cleaning those toys. But he said, suddenly, cleaning those toys had a different purpose. Because this, this was something for the single mom and her kid who you know, lived in a little rat hole, and nobody cared about them. And when you bring people into your home, it is a way to show people love and care and value them the way God values them. 
See, love has to be shown in super tangible ways. You can't just hug people. I just love you so much, you know. It's got to be more down to earth and real than that. And so you see, as you read this, as I was reading this, here's what I was thinking. It was like wave after wave after wave of love. And it wasn't challenging in the sense of I felt bad that I don't love more like this. I just saw, God, your love is so rich and full and amazing. If we would just embrace this, think of the kind of community that we could be. Think of the kind of people we could be that reflect you, which is what Jesus said. He said, people are, one of the ways that people are going to be most convinced that I came from the Father is by the way you, my followers, love one another. And so you have to look at your life and say, because you know, he's taking us through every area of our life, isn't he? Every closet, every nook, every cranny, into the attic, into the basement. And he's saying, there's love that's meant to be expressed in every one of these compartments. And so he goes, uh, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. And I'll tell you something. People are all the time ask me, John, would you pray for me that I have the gift of healing? Because I've seen God use you to heal people. I have never had anybody come to me and say, John, pray for me to have the gift of generality. Excuse me, generosity. Never. Why? Because we're selfish Americans. Do you don't think that that is a powerful gift, the gift of financial generosity? And Paul says just a few verses back, that's a spiritual gift. Go put that on your refrigerator and pray for that for the next month. And you don't have to make a lot of money to be financially generous because generosity is, is very relative, isn't it? Jesus said, a poor woman who only put two pennies into the offering gave more than all the rich people who were pouring in lots of money that they didn't need because she gave out of her need because love is self-giving. It's costly. And it's all based on the life of Jesus. He loved us that way. It's impacting us. And then we, we're trying to, as hard as we can, squeeze the bottom of the toothpaste tube of love and get some out so we can be like that. And it, then he goes on. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse. Skip that because we'll talk more about it another time. The, he says, weep with those re- that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. And this is something we as Americans are not really good at. We, we like to have good feelings towards people, but being empathetic with people is not the same as having good feelings towards people. We all like to be known as nice people, but that's not what people need, ultimately. What people need is your attention and your attentiveness and your connection with them. That when they're weeping, you, not that, that you have a reason to weep, but that you care about them enough that you get where they are. And you say, this, what you're going through matters to me. And you pay attention to them. I mean, could there be any more demonic tool to create inattentive people than a smartphone? Really? And I have one in my pocket. We have to work at fighting the distraction 
of not being focused on the people that are around us. It's a challenge for all of us. Some of us more than others. Isn't it? When is the last time you've been with someone and you've been so connected to them that you really, that they said to you, thank you. I really felt like you listened to me. I felt like you get me. Whether it was something good they were going through or something bad they were going through. When was the last time? Seriously. When was the last time where people said to you, I I really felt you here with me. I appreciated you being here with me. You just listened. You were there. Maybe it was something you said, too, that was just really helpful. But you were connected. That's challenging for us. Our our culture is is just a culture of distraction. And did you know that, that physical and emotional pain do the same thing to your brain that dementia and Alzheimer's do. People who live, this is what neuroscience shows now, because of brain scans. When people have Alzheimer's, their brain starts shrinking and atrophying. When people live with chronic emotional and physical pain, they can measure the brain being affected in the same way. And here's the problem. When we're in pain, we choose coping mechanisms that make the problem worse. And the only way those coping mechanisms get broken is if we have an empathetic witness who connects with us and helps us connect with Jesus. Because our coping mechanisms keep us from connecting with Jesus. Because they are our little salvation schemes that take care of ourselves in lieu of real love. And so we have all these fake things that we involve ourselves in that don't really meet our real genuine needs. And so an empathetic person has to work their way through those to represent Jesus and say, I, you matter, I'm listening. And then that be, we become a bridge to connect with Jesus. And if, if you, uh, uh, I made this mistake. One of my kids is here today, so he gets to hear this. He's not here usually. But we made the mistake when we were younger in raising our kids is we would give our kids time out and we would send them to another room. They'd misbehave. You need to discipline your kids, but let me tell you something. Two, two, two things. That, are, that I think of this now, and I think, why didn't I see this in the Bible? The word ch- discipline is training. Training is something that requires close connection. You know what I mean? You don't train someone in a, in a, a, at a distance. You train them right next to them. And everybody in the world needs to belong, especially kids. They need to feel like they belong. When they misbehave and we push them away, we work against their sen- the sense of belonging we're trying to give them. We're trying to make them feel like they matter. Kids can't figure it out. I matter to you? Why are you sending me to my room? I know I did something wrong, but something deep inside me is going, this is wrong. And we need to, if they misbehave, keep them close to you, but don't enable wrong behavior. You're supposed to train them. You're supposed to give them a consequence for doing something that's wrong. But do you have to injure that sense of belonging that you're working so hard to strengthen that they need for the rest of their life? Because if they don't have that sense of belonging set in place when they go out into the world, they're going to be so desperate to find belonging that they will connect in with any group of people who will do, and they'll do what those people are doing because they have a need for belonging. Do you see that? 
This is what like, we deal with in the vineyard. I tell guys in the vineyard who are dealing with pastors who get in trouble. I said, if you send them away, you're, you're just reinforcing shame. You're doing the worst thing in the world. You need to pull them in. When people misbehave, you've got to pull them close. Does that mean it gets more complicated? Yeah. Yeah, sure does. But how can you be empathetic at a distance? Riddle me that. Is that did anybody get that one? That was like a 1960s reference. There's like 11 of us here that got that. Okay. All right. Anyway, I have to pull one out every once in a while. I want to stop there. We, we, it talks about dealing with people outside the church. We have an opportunity if we, as people and as a community, we have an opportunity to receive God's word and his challenge in Christ in a way that he forms in us his love. And the world is looking for what love is really all about. Do you think someone wouldn't be drawn to a group of people who are empathetic? But the last verse and the first verse are strangely bookended together. He says, love must be sincere, hate what's evil, cling to what's good. Then the last verse in this section says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't return evil for evil. Don't take revenge. Don't, don't follow the reflex to pay someone back when they hurt you. That's hard to do. That requires a, a level of crucifixion of your own evil that is pretty challenging. But this whole passage we've been reading for, for the last three weeks started out with this. It says, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy in Christ and His sacrifice on the cross and the love He showed you that was undeserved and so rich and so amazing, it's changing your life. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices. That's your spiritual service of worship. So he says that we enter into this new kind of love by surrendering ourselves. By becoming like, really, again, another metaphor, not just a living sacrifice, but becoming like a little children. I think for us as Americans, this is a more powerful metaphor. That, that, that salvation is becoming like a little child. And sanctification moves forward as we become like little children. As we say, God, I have nothing to offer you. So I just offer you myself. All children are just helpless, needy, simple, open, honest. And they, you know, it, it changes as they get older because they get affected by the community around them. But Jesus says he took a little children, little child among him, among him, when, when all of his disciples were around, and he said, if you want to see the kingdom, you've got to become like this little child. Yeah. And that's another way of saying you have to offer your life to him as a living sacrifice. And this is this is the challenge. This is the challenge. But if we do that, this fire from God falls. And it starts burning away. What's in us that we don't like and that God doesn't like and that's causing us problems? And it starts refining and bringing the, the life of Jesus out in our heart in this miraculous way. And 
slave-trading captains like John Newton become preachers and abolitionists who will go to prison for the truth. Because when love comes down, like the song says, love came down and rescued me. Love came down and set me free. But it sets us free when we become like little children and welcome it and receive it. And go, this is what my life is about. This is what it's for. Don't you want to give your life to that, to become like that? I didn't even get into how you deal with your enemies, which, parenthetically, I will say this, because I thought about this for two weeks. If you're a Christian, and you have a bakery, you should not just immediately say, I'm not going to cook for a same-sex wedding. I, I would never marry someone who wanted me to marry them. But I think I would go, if that person mattered enough to me, I would go to a same-sex wedding. They would know how I feel about it, but I want to show them my love. If, if I'm a good baker, I overcome evil with good. I don't want to wall them off and say, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I want you to be around someone like me who cares about you, but knows that a lifestyle you've chosen isn't the best lifestyle for you. And that's a, that, that creates a lot of tension and conflict. It's just a cop-out to step back. Now, I know that this is a complicated issue. And I know that, there, that, that that might not be the approach that you take in every single situation. But I think the instinct that we have as Christians that's getting baptized right now is not this instinct of overcoming evil with good. It's not. It's the, more of the reflex of like, you're bad and I want to stay away from you. Because I don't want you to get confused and think, I don't think what you're doing is bad and wrong. And Jesus didn't, thank God, Jesus didn't do that. He came and he took on flesh and blood and, and he got killed. We're, it's not going to be a, a pleasant ride for us. Everybody who embraces the gospel is going to get persecuted. It may be a, a nice, you know, civilized kind of persecution where people talk about you behind your back or you don't get promotions or you lose friends, it, which is really ironic. If we're trying to be the kind of people who love everybody, wouldn't you think that those kind of people would want to be the kind of people you want to be friends with? Yeah, hopefully, but we're not out and for this just to get friends. We want, we want to love people, period. And I just think we have this cool opportunity every single day if we recognize love is still coming down. It's still coming down from Jesus by His Spirit into our lives. And it gives us courage to do things that we wouldn't ordinarily do. To take moral stands that need to be taken. But also to sacrifice and to draw people near us that are in trouble. Not so we can just make them feel worse and shame them, but so we can love them. Not that we always have every answer for people, but that they know someone cares for them. Because so many times it's, it's, the, it's the weeping with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice that is lacking in us as a church. That empathy that connects with people. You can go back to the garden and see God doing it with these two, the sinful couple. He sought them out. And he didn't enable them. 
He didn't shame them. But he said, there's consequences of what you did. But he covered them. God made the first sacrifice right there. He covered them. Will we be like that? Love covers. As as Peter wrote, love covers. Where did he get that idea? Because he'd been around Jesus. And he saw Jesus cover his sins on the cross. And he saw Jesus cover his life over and over and over when he constantly acted poorly. So I want to ask you today, just stand with me. Let's pray. Because there's a lot in this passage and we're not going to be able to get into it and I'm tempted to. So just pray for me. My hope, what I felt prompted from the Lord today was just to hold out to you. People don't know what love is. God shows us love in Christ and then He gives us concrete expressions of it that, that if we have ears to hear, we can welcome that, that truth into our lives and let it begin to shape us. Let it begin to order us. Let it begin to govern how we live. And, how, and, and that we do it with the intent that we're going to live, we're going to do life together. We're going to resist, you know, this cultural pull that says, no, just be... Don't be a body. Just be a pile of rocks. You know, that have no real connection together. Every once in a while, once a week, you all kind of get piled together. And then every rock goes out on its own. No, we're a body. There's, there's this intrinsic connection that we have in Jesus that we have to embrace and then learn to live it and walk it out with this kind of love. I encourage you this week, just go back through and read these passages and think, what does this mean? What does this say to me? And as it speaks to you, grace will come with it. When you feel bad, when you read a passage of Scripture that makes you feel like, gosh, that shows my shortcoming, it's just doing that, but it's a coin that on the other side of that coin, there's grace. If you welcome that truth as a child, grace comes to you and you grow. That moment can be be a moment of progress if, if you will... Embrace it. Embrace the truth. It's hard to do that. So just bow your heads with me for a minute. I'm just going to do worship. We'll just pray and and call it a day here. Lord, uh, thank you for the rich picture of love that you give us, Jesus, that you lived out perfectly. We thank you now that you're seated at God's right hand on the throne. You're in charge. Lord, Rome crushed you and killed you. But you rose from the dead and you're at the Father's right hand right now. And it's your name, it's your name, Jesus, that we put our trust and our faith in you. Lord, we offer ourselves to you, each one of us here, that you're speaking to this morning. We offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Here's our body. Here's all we are. Everything we have. And we ask, Lord, that the fire would fall again in our our hearts. That the, the fire of your word and your truth and your presence would just begin to be lit in the altar of our hearts. Again this morning. 
Fill us with the fire of your love that we could learn to demonstrate it more like what we've heard today. Lord, it's, it's so hard for us. We have these reflexes and instincts, that are the old way we've thought for so long. We want to be able to shed that and leave it. We know that we're a new person in you. We ask for the power of your spirit to work in our hearts today and begin to fill us with your love. Lord, surprise us as we look to you. Surprise us. Help us to maintain this posture to be living sacrifices, not just in this moment here, but every moment of the rest of this day and tomorrow and the next and the next. Father, uh, I know that, that many of us have closed our hearts up because of disappointments and hurts and, and stubbornness. But Jesus, uh, we believe your love is greater than our gracelessness. And so look upon us with favor right now and begin to break through, Jesus, that control and that hiding and hardness and self-protection and everything else, Lord. And just begin to let your love trickle in there into our hearts. Let us taste it and experience it today. Let's walk away with it and begin to enjoy it and then demonstrate it to others. We ask this in your name. Amen. So, uh, there's some of you here that need prayer for things. And if you see that wall out there that has prayer requests on it, there's prayer requests out there and there's little stories of answered prayer. And there's some pretty significant answered prayers out there now. And that's gonna, that wall just continues to fill up. And I want to encourage you, if you need prayer for something today, please let, just come up front here and we're going to have some people up here. We will pray for you and God will touch you.